Good evening and welcome to The Body Politic. I'm Michael Bernstein, Professor of History and Dean of Arts and Humanities here at the University of California, San Diego. When the United States military invaded Iraq to topple Saddam Hussein in 2003, the troops expected to be greeted as liberators. But as we see now, four years later, the U.S. presence has been a catalyst for exacerbating the hatred between Sunni and Shiite Muslims. Each day, we hear more about Iraqis attacking their own as the schism between these Islamic groups seems to grow wider. We'll spend the whole program on this conflict tonight with two leading experts on the Middle East. They are Vali Nasser, a professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. His most recent book is The Shia Revival, How Conflicts Within Islam Will Shape the Future. Also joining us is Gershon Shafir, a professor of sociology and the director of the Institute for International, Comparative, and Area Studies based here at UC San Diego. Welcome to both of you, gentlemen. We now read on a daily basis of escalating violence in Iraq, suicide blasts, 130 killed just a couple of days ago in Baghdad, and the National Intelligence Council has uh, issued a, an estimate now of even worsening violence in the weeks and months ahead. How do we explain this escalating violence? How do we understand this rift between a Sunni and Shiite that seems to be at the base of it? Professor Nasser? Well, Iraq has uh, become a cauldron for all kinds of violence, anti-American violence, uh, violence within between different criminal gangs. But essentially, the sectarian violence is the worst thing that we're seeing in terms of the future of that country. And uh, the long and short of it is Iraq was a very sectarian state. It was a state that was ruled by minority Sunnis over a majority of Kurds and Shias. There was very deep lines of identity in that society. Saddam Hussein himself was a, was a Sunni. Was Sunni he was Muslim. a Sunni. And, and the distribution of resources in the state, distribution of power, went down along the lines of whether you were Shia, Kurd, or you were Sunni. And in, in terms of, uh, for, for Western audience, this is something like the Catholic-Protestant divide in Northern Ireland. They're not fighting theology. They were, they were, there were issues of power and politics and control. that was involved. Is it reasonable to say that there was some period, maybe right after the initial invasion and the uh, elimination of the Hussein regime, that there was some solidarity within Iraq, or did that never obtain? Well, there was not solidarity in the sense that the, immediately when we shattered Saddam Hussein's state, there were winners and there were losers. The problem is that because we didn't have our eye on the sectarian issue, we did not have mechanisms that would have mitigated this becoming into a full-blown uh, violence. What is at stake in Iraq is that there is no state. The future of that country is up for grabs, and therefore the two sides are competing for taking over over power. How precisely uh, did the invasion affect, well, there are actually three major groups in Iraq, the Shiite, Sunni, and, and the Kurds to the north. So in all three cases, immediately following the U.S. invasion, uh, how would these groups have been affected? How did they perceive their situation? Well, in, in reality, the Kurds were already out of Iraq. In 1991, we created a no-fly zone and no-go zone for Saddam Hussein's army. For all pr practical purposes, the Kurds had their own region in the north. They were not as much affected as the Shias and the Sunnis were in the south. The Sunnis lost power. We not only destroyed Saddam Hussein's state, we destroyed the Ba'ath Party, we destroyed the Iraqi military. The, the Ba'ath Party was the foundation of Saddam Hussein's power, power. bureaucratically in, in Baghdad. Exactly. And even though not all Sunnis supported Saddam, and he did kill many Sunnis, but end of the day, as a community, 
of only 20% of Iraq, 20 to 25% of Iraq, they were getting, they were ruling over the country, and that was ended. And the Shias, who were the majority of Iraq's population, about 60 to 65%, which were pushed to the margins, came and t- took over the state through elections that the United States introduced to Iraq. So from very early on, there were winners and losers. The question was, would the Sunnis accept taking the lower end of things peacefully or not? And how would the Shias react to the provocations? But to emphasize, this is not uh, a dispute about religious or theological principles. It's a struggle over resources, political power, access to to government, uh, to to government goods, and so forth. Uh, absolutely, in the sense that the identity comes from uh, this sectarian divide. In the same way as in Northern Ireland, the Catholic Protestant identity comes from the original sectarian divide. But they're not fighting right now about theology. They're fighting about who's going to take control of Iraq, who's going to take over its resources, and who is going to dominate whom. Now, the, the current government uh, in Iraq, of course, is a mixture of, in terms of the, the high leadership, it's a mixture of uh, representatives from these various groups. You don't see any opportunity for cohesion among this, uh, se- these senior leaders. The, the president, Talibani, has occurred. Uh, the prime minister is, uh, is Shiite and so forth. How, how does that play out? They're not able to overcome these deep divisions in the communities, or is there a potential there for a solution? There is a potential, provided there would be a credible political peace process in place. Uh, what is lacking in Iraq from 2004, 2005 onwards is that there is no political process. There is nothing happening around the table where the communities are negotiating. There is better relations between Shias and the Kurds because they both were suppressed by Saddam. They both benefited from what the U.S. did. And they can very easily divide resources and and power between them. The real problem is with the Sunnis, both vis-a-vis the Kurds over the future of some cities where you have Sunni and Kurdish population, and then between the Sunnis and the Shias over the future of the capital, Baghdad, and division of the power. The real issue in Iraq is that the Sunnis have lost, but they have the means to wage an insurgency and a campaign of terror, and they still have not accepted to taking a subordinate position. So, so, do we, so do we then properly understand the violence that we read about now on a, on a daily basis as essentially being fomented by the, the Sunni by the Sunni constituency, or is there plenty of blame to go around uh, across the nation, across Iraq? Now there is plenty to go around, but it is also a fact that for the first two years of Iraq, it was the Sunni insurgency that waged a campaign of violence, not only against the United States and its troops, but also against Shia civilians and the like. And then there was the destruction of a major Shia shrine in 2006 in a city called Samara, north of Baghdad. And when that happened, that's, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Then the Shias began to retaliate, and since then, they have half the share of blame for the perpetuation of the violence. Is it also then a reasonable conclusion to say that neither of these groups see the United States presence as being constructive in the longer run? Well, that they would it, seek the withdrawal of, of U.S. forces sooner rather than later? Well, I, I think we're still in a period of time that each of these forces would like to maneuver the United States to help it. In other words, the insurgents are fighting against the U.S. to the extent that they believe the United States is propping up the Shia government, and they would like to get the U.S. out of the way. Many Sunni civilians now look to the United States as protection against the Shia militias. The Shias, on the other hand, still see the United States military as a necessity to stand up to an insurgency, which has proven its capability and ferociousness even 
uh, in the past month of you know downing four U.S. helicopters and the like. So I think both sides are uh, are worried about U.S. presence, but they, they, yet they're not ready to say that the U.S. ought to leave. Ought to leave. Let, let's broaden the let's broaden the view uh, now, looking regionally. Um, obviously, what's going on in Iraq is not occurring in a vacuum. Uh, the neighboring states are involved, whether they like it or not. Um, the Baker Hamilton Commission uh, that President Bush had had created to look into the difficulties, so-called Iraq Study Group, uh, came up with some proposals regarding involvement, uh, diplomatic engagement with Syria and Iran. Uh, President Bush has rejected this idea so far, but uh, there's generally a feeling that these involving these nations will probably be required to achieve some reduction in the level of violence. Uh, Professor Shafir, do you agree with that point of view, or do you think the study group uh, was pursuing the wrong the wrong agenda. Well, I believe that the uh, study group was gasping at straws. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the question is what would, in general, it would be very good to engage all participants, uh, whether insiders, outsiders, who later on might become insiders, uh, in a dialogue to get a clear sense of the uh, viewpoint and the strength and weaknesses. But um, I, t- I tend to think that there isn't all that much that the United States would cede to either Syria or uh, to Iran. The Syrians are concerned about the um, an investigation into the murder of the Prime Minister of uh, Lebanon, Rafiq Hariri, for which they uh, uh, seem to, uh, in which they seem to have played a major role. involvement, right. Yes. Right. So uh, the United States uh, cannot, I believe, in good conscience, uh, put an end to this investigation because by doing so, it would also deliver the Lebanese uh, people and the Lebanese uh, government as it is constituted to Syria. But ending, ending this investigation would be the requirement to engage Syria in a solution well, this for, is the, for This Iraq. is the, so to speak, the strategic threat to uh, the Syrian regime. Yes. Yes. One question I have is, um, in calls for withdrawal, or in calls for uh, the U.S. to engage with Iran or with Syria, and you've pointed out, Professor Shafir, how complicated that would be, are we then also strengthening the, uh, the government of the president of Iran, uh, President Ahmadinejad, who, of course, has taken a very uh, strong anti-U.S. position in the region? Is that the kind of perverse consequence of this of this engagement. Well, I think, think? We, we were, it, it has more bearing on the Iranian regime and the Iranian state than on Ahmadinejad specifically. I think actually Ahmadinejad, as we've seen in recent elections in Iran, uh, ha, may not be as in a firmer position as people believe. He hasn't delivered economically to the population. There were some local elections where there he local, lost some uh, some He control. lost, and then the supreme leader in Iran, who's really the head of state, actually publicly chastised them for his handling of the right. nuclear this is issue. Mr. Katami, yes. Uh, Mr. Khamenei. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the, the uh, uh, Ahmadinejad actually would benefit from a confrontation with the U.S. Because would it, strengthen him in the eyes of, right. of Iranian Engagement citizens. would not strengthen him because uh, he would prefer that the, politi- the focus of the political debate within Iran shifts from his record on economic issues to a nationalistic situation where everybody would rally to the flag whether they like him or not. not. Um, And I think, you know, uh, in many ways, some of his bluster against Israel and the U.S., even the timing of his his Holocaust conference, which was just about a week before the Iraq study group group report was released, was suggestive that he wanted to actually scuttle 
the potential for talks. Now, Professor Shafir mentioned Lebanon. Let's just return to the case of Lebanon. The, the Shiites in Iran and also in Syria are quite supportive of Hezbollah, uh, a, a, the uh, radical Muslim group in uh, in Lebanon that, of course, recently uh, went to war with, with Israel. So how does this factor into the mix? Uh, from the standpoint of the United States, how does it either empower or limit uh, the flexibility with which the United States can look to a regional solution to the Iraqi crisis? Yes. Well, uh, many describe the uh, Shiites as an arc, basically spreading all the way from the uh, Gulf uh, to the Mediterranean via Bahrain, uh, Iran, Iraq, uh, and uh, parts of Syria and Lebanon. And another so uh, in some ways, the, um, these various conflicts have um, now pitted or mobilized these identities uh, and made them antagonistic uh, to each other. Uh, and uh, ironically, the United States seems to, uh, has helped the Shiites in Iraq, but it is engaged in confrontation with them in Lebanon as well as in uh, some uh, of the and, other and, and parts of the And standing in the background of this set of issues, of course, is Israel and its relationship with its neighbors, of which Lebanon, of course, is a crucial one. So yes. how does that, again, how does that complicate the situation from the U.S. perspective? Well, it, it seems to me that uh, one of the interesting uh, uh, discoveries of the multiple conflicts is that the old term, the Middle Eastern conflict, which used to refer specifically to the Israeli-Palestinian one, in some ways has now become just one of several of many, yeah. or many, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the confrontation between uh, Iraq, between Sunnis, Shias and the Kurds has very little, in fact, maybe nothing to do with that a particular a, a set of issues. Uh, in the case of Lebanon, there is a, a considered the, the Israeli uh, Hezbollah confrontation uh, has, in fact, contributed, I think, to the uh, widening rift between Sunnis and Shias because some of the uh, Sunni uh, countries, uh, Arab countries, including Egypt and Saudi Arabia, in fact, express some uh, indirect support or express the hope that the Israelis would uh, be able to overcome Hezbollah. Yeah, and now, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. Let, uh, we can take a further step to broaden the frame there. Um, as you say, Saudi Arabia, uh, a Sunni, a Sunni state predominantly. Is there a potential, as you see it, within Saudi Arabia for the kind of sectarian violence that we've now witnessed in Iraq and now spreading elsewhere in the region, or not? The, the Saudis, of course, being very powerful, uh, a very powerful presence in the Middle East, given their oil reserves and their and their military. That well, is that, a cheerful thought. That's a cheerful thought. That, uh, well, the, the uh, Shia minority in Saudi Arabia, which is about 10 to 15 percent of Saudi population, lives in a strategic area. It lives right on top of the oil fields. And most of the oil workers in Saudi Arabia are Shia, even though they don't really benefit from the oil wealth in the kingdom, which goes to the areas where there is no oil. But uh, uh, the community in Saudi Arabia is not in a situation of revolt right now. Uh, it has got some gains uh, ever since the fall of the regime, uh, Saddam's regime in Iraq. It has got some religious rights, some modicum of political rights. And has this been a response from the Saudi authorities? Absolutely, to absolutely. Them? But it, uh, the, the danger in Saudi Arabia is that uh, the Saudi regime's back is also the very hardline, militant, radical Sunni establishment of Saudi Arabia, the pro-Al-Qaeda types we've seen. So the Saudi government is uh, stuck between a stone and a hard place. If it tries to accommodate the Shias, 
then it, uh, its flank is open to criticism from these radical pro-Al-Qaeda types. Uh, on the other hand, if it doesn't accommodate the Shias, it runs a risk that if Iraq, right next door you have a Shia government in Iraq, you have elections now in Bahrain, you have uh, you know, a potential confrontation with Iran, that uh, it does run a risk that if it doesn't handle its own domestic Shia population, it might have an internal problem. But I also think Saudi Arabia's worry about the Shia issue is not just internal, it's external. It's a, it's a regional concern. It's a regional concern. Yeah. It's very worried about the rise of Iranian power, the rise of, uh, you know, uh, a sort of what uh, Gershon referred to, if, even if you don't call it an arc, at least a perception that there is this uh, uh, new force in the region and that uh, potentially Iran and, uh, and Iraq could overshadow Saudi Arabia in the Persian Gulf is region. It, is it your perception that U.S. authorities, as they planned for and executed the invasion of Iraq, were unaware of the potential for the Shiite-Sunni conflict to escalate in this way, or they, they minimized it, they thought that it would be, uh, it would be swept away by uh, excitement over the liberation uh, of, by they, U.S. forces? I think they looked at pieces of the puzzle, and they never put the entire picture together. For instance, you, uh, among the new conservative thinkers, the so-called new conservatives, sometimes they talked about the fact that, you know, uh, Iraqi uh, and Saudi Shias will be an ally of the United States, benefiting from the liberation that the U.S. brings, and they will undo these uh, sort of hardline Sunnis of Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Middle East. So you would hear arguments about that the liberated Iraq would present a moderate, progressive image of Shiism that then would be a threat to, for democracy. For, yeah. Not only in the Arab world, but specifically against Shia Iran. So it's almost uh, like uh, periodically the word Shia and an image of a Shia-Sunni conflict, but, but of a particular kind, would surface in the rhetoric, but then it never would, uh, would be pursued to the logical conclusion of what it might mean. The irony, one irony I'm detecting here, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, President Ahmadinejad of, of Iran had suffered some weakening uh, in local elections that took place recently. There seems to be more of a democratic process underway in Iran than, of course, is underway in Iraq right now, given the violence and turmoil. Well, I mean, this was one of the miscalculations about Iran. I, I remember when the first elections in Iraq happened, that the Secretary of State said that the Iranian people will now look to Iraq and Afghanistan. As an example, and, yes. Well, first of all, the, the best way of alienating Iranians is to tell them to look at <laughs> Afghans and Arabs for, for model. But secondly was that uh, the, the Iranians believed that the, that kind of an election they had already done. I mean, that the Afghans were ele- and Iraqis were voting for the very first time. They were learning the rudiments of voting behavior, process, yeah. and that in their own sense that they had done that in 1980, you know, put your finger in ink and just say yay or nay to, to, to a vote, that Iran's problems are a bit past that. Uh, in other words, it's questions of constitutional reform in Iran, right. it's questions of accountability of government, it's not the question of straight voting. That they do on a routine basis, and, and we miss that. And in that, as a result, we were trying to engage the Iranian public at a level of discussion of democracy that was hitting the mark. Well, now, now, given these limitations on uh, information gathering, analysis, perception, as you say, looking at pieces of the puzzle, but not the puzzle as a whole, uh, I guess the $60 million question becomes, what can the U.S. do now, in your views, 
uh, what can the U.S. do now to uh, try to bring stability to the region, uh, try to lessen the level of violence? Uh, it's that old question, if you were the president, what would you do now in this situation? <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't think there's any silver bullet solution anymore. Uh, and I don't think we can fix some of these conflicts, such as the Shia-Sunni conflict. The train, in some ways, has left the station. What we can do is not to aggravate it and, not to, and to try to be mindful that uh, not to deepen the cleavages because then it would be a much bigger problem. Do we us. deepen those cleavages simply by having troops on the ground or is it a particular way the troops are being used or the objectives being sought? Well, when you have more troops on the ground, uh, you're go obviously you're going to give them a mission. And we send this new 20,000 troops with a mission of essentially extending the war to Shia militias. And that do does run certain risk with it. We could end up provoking a Shia insurgency in southern Iraq. We could, uh, you know, g extend the scope of the violence. This would accelerate the it response. Accelerate. So, uh, the any time you, you we're not sending sufficient number of troops to smother the conflict, we're sending enough to extend it. See. There's been a lot of commentary in the, uh, in, at least in the U.S. press, with which I'm familiar about, uh, the failures of the reconstruction programs, literally the physical reconstruction of Iraq in the wake of the invasion itself, and of course now the, the destruction that's occasioned by the, by the violence that is a, a daily occurrence there. Um, if the U.S. were to invest more resources in rebuilding the infrastructure, the the electrical grid is still deficient, uh, roads and so forth are compromised, the water system. Would that tend to lessen violence, or do you think this matter is accelerated beyond these kind of material solutions? Well, that's a, a chicken and egg problem. In other words, we cannot do most of those things because of the violence. And w until we get a handle on the violence, then we cannot actually... There's no way to put people in harm's way to, to repair exactly. these things. I see. I guess the most difficult thing to do, you're, you're, you're both experts on the region and, and uh, study the situation as it's evolved and as it currently uh, exhibits itself, but the future. Uh, what do you see happening in the next year, uh, the next two years? Uh, this is leading into, obviously, a presidential election cycle in the United States, which will muddy the waters further as to U.S. conduct in the region. What are the outcomes you envision, best case, worst case? Well, I, I think uh, the best case is that we're going to sort of have the continuation of what we have right now. I don't see that improving for the reason that there is no political framework on the ground. In other words, all the debate in the United States is around troop numbers, the new strategy. It's not about constitutional reform within Iraq. Or, 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 or something of the level of what we do with the uh, Arab-Palestinian-Israeli issue, which to come up with some kind of a framework of uh, of of engagement for, 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 for peace, put diplomatic skin in the game, uh, you know, put some of diplomatic capital in trying to bring the two sides together. There is no political process right now, period. It's all, it's all benchmarks about reaching a goal, but no talk of process. So it's not going to get any better. The worst case scenario is that the violence would escalate, either because of uh, its extension with, to the, uh, by deployment of U.S. troops, or because the, the kind of violence we're seeing, like bombing of marketplaces, shrines, and the like, will just reach a point which it will overwhelm the U.S. capability to handle it, or that we end up escalating this by uh, uh, starting another war uh, with Iran that will complicate Iraq gravely. So I think I would see it between where we are 
and a lot worse and, than and we're and a lot worse, but but no better. I, I know in some of your in some of your writings, including this this new book, Professor Nasser, you you uh, look at the analogy some draw between the current situation in Iraq and Vietnam in the 1970s as the U.S. extricated itself. But you don't entirely agree with that analogy. You think that uh, uh, there's a possibility for a solution or. I don't know if solution's the right word, but an outcome that would might uh, more approximate India at the time of the partition between Islamic and uh, Hindi communities. Is that right? Well, uh, the, the, the Vietnam analogy most applies to when we confronted only the insurgency. So, and we saw the insurgency as a nationalistic and liberationist force. The insurgency now is increasingly sectarian. In, in Iraq. In yes. Iraq. Yeah. So what we're seeing is a civil war. And civil wars is a matter of uh, the fact that there is no, no power-sharing agreement. That's why we have civil war. So uh, there is a chance of dealing with this uh, non-militarily if it would be possible to get a political agreement at the center. I'm not saying we're going to be successful, but we're not really trying. We're not that trying way. that. And uh, just to conclude, we have a, we have a minute left. Uh, you mentioned the need to get diplomatic skin in the game to if 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 this better outcome is is even uh, one we can envision. Would that necessarily, in your mind, involve in? Uh, engagement with the neighboring states along the lines that uh, Professor Shafir uh, mentioned earlier with uh, Iran, Lebanon, Syria? Well, I, I think all the, all the caveats that uh, Professor Shafir raised are very true, but I think we need to engage not just Iran and Syria, but also Saudi Arabia, Jordan uh, as well, who have a big, are playing a big role in this in, in, to the extent of even supporting the insurgency uh, diplomatically, if not materially. But, you know, right now we're having a conflict between two Palestinian factions. And there is much more diplomatic effort going in, in terms of bringing Mahmoud Abbas and and, and Hamas Hamas together together, than is going to getting the Shias and the Sunnis together. All we're basically doing is that we expect you guys to solve it yourself. And find a way of doing it. We're expecting them to take care of it. But we're neither going to push the... Sunnis to accommodate, nor are we going to push the Shias to accommodate. We just somehow expect that two warring people can have the wisdom to rise above their own conflict. And, and, to see uh, in addition to not applying the pressure, we're not really giving them dramatic incentives to, uh, at the Absolutely. moment, to come to the table and try to forge that. Yeah, I think the, the U.S. invasion in Iraq was a gamble. And now when it's going poorly, uh, our president is doubling the uh, odds. And, uh, With the investment of more troops, the, the so-called gambling, surge. Gambling again, yes. And I think the results uh, are pretty much foreordained here. The um, one other thing the United States lost, I think, is is its uh, ability to influence things diplomatically. I don't think that the United States is in the same position as it was uh, several years ago, where it could have and did not engage with several of these countries before the invasion. Before the invasion, and uh, before uh, before the Israeli-Lebanese war, before the election of Hamas, and so on and so forth. But I think while the United States would always be required to underwrite any agreements in the Middle East, uh, I think there are other actors now that whom the door has opened. There is a Saudi initiative uh, from 2002. Maybe the United Nations could play a could, could greater increased role. role. And the Jordanians may, in fact, yes. uh, there be an opportunity to involve them more. Well, on these notes, I think we'll have to leave it. Uh, Thank you both for your insights. My guests have been Vali Nasser, author of The Shia Revival and a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School, and Gershon Shafir of UC San Diego's Institute for International Comparative and Area Studies. Thank you all for joining us on The Body Politic. I'm Michael Bernstein. 
Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.